0: Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. In every episode, you'll hear stories of our authors of color, how God led them to write their books, and the challenges they had to overcome along the way.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Helen Lee, one of the producers of the Every Voice Now podcast. And I'm delighted to introduce today's conversation with Sean Palmer. He's the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston. He's a speaker, executive coach, and Enneagram expert. And his voice might sound familiar to you because Sean joined us on our first season of the podcast in one of our Enneagram Supersize episodes after the release of his book, 40 Days on Being a Three. So if you haven't tuned into that episode, I do encourage you to go back and listen to that sometime. But today, Sean is back with us after having released a second book with IBP, Speaking by the Numbers. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sean Palmer. John Palmer, it's always a delight to talk to you. And uh, today we're going to start actually with a question I know we asked you last time, but since there are some folks who might listen to this episode who didn't get a chance to listen to the earlier one, tell us a little bit about your ethnic background and maybe some just kind of key pivotal moments in your own ethnic identity story.
0: Yeah, well, Helen, thanks for having me on again. I appreciate being here and so love what this podcast does and who it's for and who it highlights and centers. So I am African-American. My parents were both born in Mississippi. So we are from the American South. They were, my dad was born in 1947. My mom was born in a year that she probably wouldn't want me to share, but my dad doesn't <laughs> care as much. And so what that, what I means is uh, at the time that they were, you know, coming of age when they were late adolescence in their college years is when so many things were happening around the country, around the civil rights movement. So one of the stories that I tell in in my book, Unarmed Empire, is about Medgar Evers and the assassination of Medgar Evers in Jackson, Mississippi. And one of the interesting touch points in my personal history is that at the time, my father was Medgar Evers' paperboy. And so this is sort of the milieu that I grew up in. Later, when I was at junior high, our family moved to Stone Mountain, Georgia. Some folks who were good at Students of history will recall that Stone Mountain was name checked by Martin Luther King Jr. And and I have a dream speech. That's because it was an armory for the Confederacy. In the rise of the Klan in the early days of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War, Stone Mountain was used as a rallying point. And even now, to this day, there is a relief in the side of Stone Mountain, which features Stonewall Jackson, General Lee, and Jefferson Davis. And every year there's a big laser show they put on the side of the mountain. Hundreds of thousands of people come and watch that. And it ends with this animation of these three figures coming to life in the laser show. And they're playing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, all of those things. So that's like the backdrop that I grew up. So it's very it was racially diverse for the time. And we're talking about the 90s, but also racially tense Like this Stone Mountain has been and up until the time I was there, kind of a hub for lots of racial tension. Then I went on to college. I came out to Texas to go to college. I went to Abilene Christian University because I wanted to major in youth and family ministry within my denomination. That was just kind of the place to go. And when I got there, the racial makeup was 6% other, like not 6% African American, just 6% other. But that placed me in a situation where in college and like post college, I was around predominantly white people virtually all the time. And so it's been a life of being in and out of multiple cultures and all the things that come with that. like the code switching that comes with that, kind of the adaptability it's just part of the way that I have made my way through the world at this point in my life, with all of that in the rearview mirror, I've seen both what that's cost me in a lot of ways, but also a, what it, that in many ways, and because it's been costly, but it, because it's been good it's been a calling to be in those spaces because there are things that I can do and say in those spaces that I hope were helpful, that are challenging to folks who don't see a problem with those spaces, spaces existing like that. But yeah, it's not always been fun. It's often been costly. And it's not if I had a magic wand, what I would have chosen, but it's definitely feels like that's the way that God directed my life.
1: Could you share a little more about when you what you mean when you say costly, uh, examples of how that has manifested itself in your life, just maybe moments that you remember?
0: Yeah. So when you are in spaces so much of the time that are racially other than you, you don't know how much of yourself you're giving away. You don't know all the ways that you are doing little things like biting your tongue, the microaggressions and insults that you swallow because you are just basically outnumbered in those spaces and the risk of having zero relationships if you were to be more aggressive. And so you find the ones that are the most friendly in those spaces, but even those can have a level of hostility that you wouldn't have in a same in more racially diverse spaces. So I see this a lot with my daughters. Who are much, who are very deliberate about picking out spaces where they can be with people who share their experiences, who look like them, who have this similar worldview because of their experiences, who've endured some of the same hardships and setbacks because of their race and some of the same culture because of their race. And those are opportunities that, that I didn't have. And I did not realize how much that lack of that availability and my own blindness in choosing to some. Regard, because I'm not going to say that it's always it's someone else's fault necessarily. How much that ultimately costs you in terms of the self and what you offer to others for nothing in return or for insult in return.
1: Yeah, no, that's like resonate with much of what you're saying. Um, Sadly, it's a reality I think for those of us who are often operating these majority white spaces. So all that yeah resonates. You start out speaking by the numbers with a little mini story with your youth leader, you know, telling you, you ought to be a speaker, which is this very precise and a prophetic word on your life. So I want to know more about that moment. I wish I'm wondering if you can take us back, paint the scene, tell us about this youth leader and what was kind of happening in the setting of that moment from what you remember. Yeah.
0: Well, it's so it's, it's really odd about that. So I late high school is in a pretty large youth group and the way that things were structured there was that every grade which every grade probably had about 12 to 20 students in it and so the way that we divided that we were in what were called huddles so you started out with four adult leaders usually two couples when you were in seventh grade and they were basically your sunday school bible class leaders from seventh grade all the way till you graduated. Wow, high okay. So you were, you were with them for a long yeah. time. And so I came a little bit later in that process. I didn't start going to that church until I was like in eighth grade, ninth grade, I think ninth grade. And so you, you're in that group. And so I'd graduated and gone off. And what happens was that two of my leaders decided to re-up. So they had started again with a new group in seventh grade. Okay. And so I came back after my freshman year of college. And I was going to work for our church that summer. And the first thing you had to do, first thing on the schedule was the junior high retreat. And so all the interns coming back kind of led the junior high retreat. And so these were the folks who were my youth, leader, my huddle group leaders with their new seventh graders. And our youth pastor had asked me to just do a devotional Sunday morning, the communion devotional. So in my tradition, we we share communion every week. And so I did that. And then sat down next to her. And she was the one who said, the female of the couple couples, one who said, like, you ought to be a speaker, which is so crazy because this is, you want to talk about all the things that you, you give away in white spaces. I remember this is, this is a woman who had told me, like, in, while I was in high school, and I appreciate her honesty, but she had told me, like, she would never date someone like outside of her race. And the reason being, cause I wouldn't want my children to look like that.
1: Oh my gosh. Wow.
0: And kind of at this point in life, like she and I would probably agree that Jesus is Lord and nothing else in terms of theology, but God did use her in that moment to kind of set a course for me. And I think this is what, you know, because I was in student ministry for about a dozen years and I always felt like that was one of the key components of being in student ministry is to help students form a vision for what their life could be. Maybe even outside of the things that they've considered or their parents considered.
1: Well, it sounds like when I read about that moment in the book, it was a life changing moment for you. It kind of opened your eyes to this whole aspect of your giftings that you hadn't previously known about. So tell me a little bit about what changed for you as the truth of that statement started to settle in you. How did it shape some of your vocational steps after or experiences after that moment?
0: So I think it was kind of always in the back of my mind that I might go into ministry but one of the crucial steps in hearing a call for many of us is just confirmation so i had already decided coming into that summer that if i really liked doing this that i might go into ministry my plan was to ultimately go to law school and so i picked a major where you had to write a lot so that's why i did that and so sensing that that I could be, that I had this unique gift that I could spend my life enhancing that would be a blessing for the kingdom was really crucial in that moment. say like, okay, they're like, the bones of this house are good. Like I can build on this. I can add to it and it actually be useful and helpful to other people. And so I did go back to school that fall and change my major to something that had more to do with where I wanted to go. And I've never... I mean, it's been over a quarter of a century now that I've been in ministry. And I've never had a day where I felt like I shouldn't be in ministry. Like I've had days where I felt like maybe I don't want to be, <laughs> right? Or that, oh man, if I if I did X, Y, or Z, this might be a little bit more lucrative or whatever. But I've never had a day where I didn't feel like this isn't exactly what God intended for me to do with my life. And then that all began that day. And it's been a real gift because a lot of people who should be in ministry never have the sense that they should be administered.
1: Well, I love hearing about that aspect of your vocational journey. And as we head towards talking a little bit more about your book, the other piece of that story is your Enneagram journey. And we got to hear a little bit about that in our episode in season one and how you met Suzanne Stabile, Enneagram master, and one of our fellow IVP authors. And you had the chance to eventually do an apprenticeship with her as you shared back then. But now I'd love to go a little deeper on this topic, because you've gotten to a place where you have developed really deep expertise on the Enneagram. And as we both know, there aren't that many people of color who have that kind of expertise. You develop that knowledge as a Black man in an area where there are not that many Black men who have dove into the topic the way you have. So... Talk to us a little bit about your Enneagram journey and reaching this level of expertise through that lens of race.
0: So my first weekend that I went and spent with Suzanne during that time when I was studying with her, I asked her during the break because I I had a sense. I was like, I know who's going to be in this class with me. It's going to be mostly white women over 50 with expendable income. Because there are certain things that you have to have to be able to do a course like that. You got to have the time. You have to have several thousand dollars for just to register. You got to be able to fly there. You got to be able to house yourself, find some kind of housing. You got to eat while you're there. Like you are in for some serious dollars to do this. And so I knew exactly who it was going to be. And I know the books that I was reading, at least ones that people had pointed me to through that time. And I just became curious and I asked Suzanne, I said, is the Enneagram just for white people? Because what I did not want to do is spend even more space. But I'm also a three on the Enneagram where I thought like maybe the next thing for me to the next way that I can be helpful to other folks is to offer a different take. Because my question had always been, Am I genuinely a three on the Enneagram or am I the son of two parents who grew up in the civil rights movement, whose parents used to say things like to advance, you have to be twice as good as white folks, like you have to work hard, you know, feelings aren't facts like that were the met was I naturally a three or am I the product of parents who had to work their tails off in this country to create opportunities? So here's my dad, who's got a, you know, who has a PhD from the University of Mississippi at this point in, in, in my life. And my mom, who was kind of one of these whip smart, like skipped grades in school sort of people, like, is that true? How racialized is my, any, what I think my Enneagram identity is? And my older brother is a seven, which means he's also an aggressive number, and so what I've come to find out, you know, and when people will talk to you, if you go to, if you talk to 10 men of any race, right, who grew up in challenging time, maybe an economically stressful neighborhood, like they will all, if you show them the Enneagram, they will all identify as eights, but they're not all eights, but they have had to adopt those behaviors to survive. So one of my good friends, my co-teacher for the summer in a class I'm teaching, is a wonderful woman named Suzanne Dion, who has worked with the Prison Enneagram Project. And she says, like, when she teaches the Enneagram in those spaces, regardless of race, but we know what the, we know how America imprisons its citizens, like the imbalances in who goes to jail for how long, dependent upon race. Like, and anyone listening can just Google those facts. Like, I'm not making that up. And she says, you know, they have to teach from the gift side of the Enneagram rather than the shadow side of the Enneagram, because there's already so much self-hate and shame and self-anger at play when you go into prison. And so I was starting to look at the Enneagram and thinking there's more here than most people know, which is kind of the typology, know your number stuff. But what would be really helpful for people? Where does the transformation occur? And you have to know your type, but the transformation occurs when we get into things Like stances when we start looking at what, you know, harmony triads versus harmonic triads. So I didn't know, like I knew eights, nines and ones were gut body anger triads, two, threes and fours, feeling shame, five, six and sevens, thinking head triad, all of that. But I didn't know about all the others, all the other ways that it worked and how we change when we're integrated versus when we're disintegrated. I didn't know about coping styles that folks grab onto and how to frame those. And so what I found is the Enneagram, like starts out as this sort of, here's the nine types, but it begins to fracture in all these really uh, meaningful and significant ways that then our personality type and personal story comes together. And so people of color and people of LGBTQIA community have different stories. So when you go and you hear someone teach on type, They actually are teaching from two things. They're teaching from their type, which is what Speaking by the Numbers is largely about. But we're also teaching from our cultural and racial experience because being African-American male, like I have a different set of experiences where being a three reveals itself in particular ways. One of my coworkers is an Asian woman. She's our campus pastor at our downtown campus, and she's a two on the Enneagram. Well, she it wasn't until we beginning, really talking with her about the cultural expectations for a way an Asian woman should be in America. Oh, yes. And, be, and because she's a two, she actually meets some of those expectations naturally. But, you know, and if in our congregation, we have a significant Asian population, like we have members of our, our board of elders or our, our Asian women. And I hadn't heard those stories, so I couldn't actually teach effectively the full range of the Enneagram without knowing it really shows up differently as, you know, a suburban white mom of three kids who is a two versus an Asian woman in that same space. And that's really helpful for us to know. And like there are different challenges, like as an African-American three on the Enneagram than there are a white male three on the Enneagram. And if we're, if the idea behind the Enneagram is to care better for ourselves and to care better for other people, then those are spaces we have to know. And so I wanted to explore that. And that's what sent me kind of into the the rabbit hole for the last five (laughs) or six years.
1: Before we return to our conversation, I wanted to let you know about a book from IVP called Healing Conversations on Race, Four Key Practices from Scripture and Psychology by Viola Vasquez, Joshua Nab, Charles Lee Johnson, and Crystal Hayes. In this book, four experts in psychology and social work present a model for how to build and deepen the cross-race relationships we want. Each chapter will guide you through biblical examples, case studies, activities, and journaling exercises to prepare you for practicing healing conversations. This book is the culmination of professional and deeply personal conversations the authors have had with each other wrestling together over current events, over their own stories, and over their roles in the healing process. They combine biblical teachings with psychological science to help Christians develop the skills to discuss race and ethnicity. So stick around until the end of the show to hear how you can get a special deal on healing conversations on race. I'm Helen Lee and you're listening to the Every Voice Now podcast where we're talking today with IVP author, Sean Palmer. Sean, I'd love to hear a little bit about the story of Speaking by the Numbers in terms of its origins and its genesis. Was this a book that you had in your mind all along that you would write, or was it somehow inspired by your work on 40 Days on Being a Three? Just tell us a little bit about how this book emerged.
0: So for a couple of years now, I've been a speaking coach working with clients lots of preachers and other folks, just to help them communicate better with more clarity and with stronger focus. And I started looking, I was doing that, and this is while I was studying the Enneagram. And the more I learned about the Enneagram, I thought this is a great tool to help professional speakers craft messages that are going to be more impactful for a greater number of people. And I initially started, and I tell this story in the book of one of my church members, Coming up to me and saying after a particular sermon, like that's the most Enneagram three sermon I've ever heard (laughs) in my life, which made me think, oh, like, what if here I am, someone who's really committed. Like I did my I studied homiletics when I did my master's really committed to the spoken word and really think that it can be transformative. But I've been missing people because I have been talking to myself, thinking that the world sees the rest of the world sees the world the way that I do. And so that's how I got to this book, thinking through, okay, how does it show up for certain people? And the problem when you teach the Enneagram, broadly speaking, is that you've got to go around the circle. You've got to teach to all nine numbers, which takes a lot of time and a lot of ink. But what I discovered in Enneagram stances, the triads and stances, is that all numbers receive information in one of three ways. And then we process that information in one of three ways. And then I thought, OK, that I can do something with in a 20 or 30 minute talk to a group of people like I can hit where people where they live. And part of this comes from the idea of when I was in college, I was a um, telemarketer for my university. So we would call alumni and do fundraising. So I worked in the development office. And as you're training in the development office, they give you I think it's like there's something like. Seven or twelve motivators. And so these are the things that motivate people to give. And you have got to become a really good listener to understand these motivators and to then pick up the motivator which you need to deploy when you're talking to potential donors. And so like my mind is thinking, okay, I know that there are these motivators out there. So I want as a communicator for people to actually do something with what i give them and the enneagram is a great tool for learning that so what if we and you know we write not because we're experts on something but we're trying to figure something out at least i do like i'm trying to learn and i knew enough about this that i knew that there was something there that i wanted to pursue knowing and i had no idea what i was getting myself into because there's so much to learn and so much to know And I tried in speaking by the numbers to make that as simple and straightforward as I could. Like, that's why there are so many charts in the the book. I've never written anything with charts, charts, but I thought people are not going to understand this if we don't have charts. And thankfully, my friend John Singletary, who is at Baylor University, already had some really beautiful charts and graphs that played this out. And he was he was gracious enough to let let us use those by his permission. And then we created some. And so I think that's how I got here.
1: As you have been applying what it is you have written about and are continuing to learn, do you have any stories of times where using this way of thinking about communicating has altered the way you present a sermon, a talk, and a result that has been different than maybe what you've experienced in the past?
0: It has altered the way that I prepare my presentations because obviously i'm asked this a lot they're like well do you do this and i was like well, yeah i do and so at the beginning i i have a printout that every talk begins on this sheet and it's a storyboard and that's a technique that i teach my clients how to storyboard a message but at the top of it i've got several questions i want to answer as i'm working through it and i have amended that to where now it just it says at the top think feel And I want to make sure that I am giving my hearers a significant amount to think about. I want to make sure that we touch our feeling center, that people are emotionally connected to what's happening and something to do. Depending on the aim, the greater aims of that communication set, I might land more heavily on one or the other because there's sometimes where you just need people to do something. Right. And there are some times where I just want to bring you into contact with how with a feeling to reengage your own feeling center. But I want every one of those to be in a message because there are some folks who like it's not a good message if you don't give them enough to think about. And it's others, it's not good if you don't give them something to do. But what I'm doing, especially in my context where I speak most of the time in a church setting is like you're not going to get something to do every week. You're not going to get some new set of ideas every week. But on balance, like if you're here, the majority of worship gatherings over a course of a year, you will get a steady diet, hopefully to form a more rounded person. But it also then shapes, and again, in a church setting, the series that we do. So, like right now, we are in a series called Hearing What She Said or something like that. And we're just working through great women thinkers, leaders in the church throughout church history. And so we'll take like one person and it's like give kind of a biography of her life where it touches the scripture, like where she is inviting us to live out a particular scripture and invite the church to see the world the way that she saw it. But it's still a Christian church sermon. So it's it's scripture based and we're using these women's lives kind of as an illustration. So it's kind of the reverse of the way most things are put together, but that's mostly a thing. Like that's mostly a thinking sermon, right? Mm-hmm. That's a mostly a thinking series. So we've got to follow that up at some point with something that's heavy on doing, like how we live together. So each year, and so you balance it out throughout the year. And we're actually redoing our entire formation process mm. throughout our church around these centers of intelligence about around thinking, feeling, and doing. And so, we want to have things that invite the entire congregation into deepening those centers of intelligence, knowing that for each person, one center of intelligence is going to be the go-to, going to be much more instinctive and natural for them. So, that's how it's showing up for us.
1: I love it. I'd love to actually talk a little bit about kind of the intersection between your speaking and your writing. Are they kind of like two sides of the same coin? Are they distinct and different for you to think about? Was it, is it harder to do one or the other? Do you prefer one or the other? Just talk to us a little bit about the relationship between your speaking and your writing.
0: Yeah. So the answer to that is yes and no, right? So I write manuscripts for the majority of my sermons, but I don't preach the manuscript. And I do that for a couple of reasons. One is that I want to remember what I said. And so like, if I just like have a note someplace like bird story, Like in four years, I won't remember what the bird story was, but I also want to make sure I'm not repeating myself too often. So when I preach, even though I've written a manuscript, my main task when I'm preaching is to be present, like to be in the room. So I don't want to read the manuscript. I do want to memorize certain pieces that I've crafted in a particular way. So writing has made me a better preacher in terms of the use of language. In terms of broadening language, in terms of disruptions and discontinuations, that sort of thing, and it also makes your thinking clear. So that's the beautiful thing about writing is it forces you to think clearly. It's like, oh, I said that. I'm repeating that. I've gotten to the end of writing sermons and taking out whole sections because I've already said this. So it it makes your verbal presentations more crisp, and it makes your thinking more crisp. So I encourage most of the people that I work with. And, you know, I also part of my job here at our local church is I work with younger staff people who are wanting to move into communication more and helping them to plus up their skills. And that's one of the things that writing does. Like it makes you think clearly, get your ideas out on paper.
1: Do you prefer one over the other, speaking over writing or writing over speaking? Or do you love both equally as forms of communication?
0: Well, I mean, selfishly speaking is much better because you get instant feedback Like you get to, you're in the room. So does the joke land? And I'm naturally better at it. It takes a lot. And I'm sure you could ask around at IVP. I feel so badly for the people who have to edit me because <laughs> they have to come up with sensitive ways to say this makes no sense <laughs> because like, as we, as all writers know, there's just something that's lost between the head and the fingers. Like when you're typing and it's just like, or like you get, I've got to revise something today. Like, Oh, I got a word wrong, but it's a crucial word. Like there's a big difference between could and could not when you're advocating for something. <laughs> Here's the difference. If I got a phone call and someone needed me to speak at something in 30 minutes, the biggest hurdle I would have is driving there in 30 minutes. If you want me to write something, I have many, many hurdles to do that well. And so if that means I prefer speaking more than I do, just because I'm just more competent at it.
1: Well, I would love to follow back up with what you just said about many hurdles in to write. Because you mentioned that the last time we spoke about how when you were younger, you didn't necessarily get a lot of encouragement for your writing. And yet now you've written three books. So maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what it was that it gave you the motive. I mean a lot of people want to write books. Say they want to write books, even, you know, would call themselves good writers and yet they can't write a book. And you've done three. So you have figured out a way to overcome whatever hurdles you feel like you have internally. And I would love just your insights into how How you did that or how people could do that, if they feel that same kind of sense of, I want to write a book, I feel called to write a book, but I feel like I have all these
0: barriers. Yeah, well, it it helps to be a three, seven or eight on the Enneagram because you have all of that aggressive, regardless (laughs) of energy. We don't always have to have encouragement is great. We don't have to have it to do something. So that's the first step. And I don't know. I mean, you're right. Like lots of people say they want to write a book. It's something that I always knew that I wanted to do. Like even back as a teenager, I wanted to write a book one day. And I don't know what made me do it when other people want to write books and and just can't seem to. And I think part of it is I took it very slowly. Though it seems everyone who writes a book, it seems like overnight success to everybody else but them. Mm -hmm. Because they know how many hours they have spent writing and how many things they tried to do that didn't work out. In I don't know, 2004, maybe I had kind of piddled around with a blog. And then my mother-in-law gave me like $200 for Christmas. And I thought I paid attention to people who were doing really well in the blogging space back when blogging was a thing. And they were saying, these are the things you need to do. Like you need to have like a dedicated domain page, not just somebody at blogspot.blogspot.com like to be taken seriously. Um, really build out a website do and I thought okay, I've got this 200 bucks. Like I'm going to do that. And it started with and I was like I'm really going to hunker down. I'm going to write 5 days a week and see if I could build an audience. And so I started doing that. And a couple years later, you know, I started waking That's when I started waking up at 4:45 5 in the morning cuz our girls were little and like once they were up you couldn't get anything done. Yeah. So I started there. And began just working my way, building a readership. So it was five days a week. And then a couple of years after that, that got to be too much. It went to three days a week. Then it went to two days a week. And the traffic was still about the same. Mm-hmm. And then it was like one day a week. And so I proved to myself at a low level that I could actually generate content. It wasn't all great content, right? <laughs> like when you're writing five days a week, like it just can't be when you're publishing five days a week. And uh, all of those things that all of those habits that successful writers talk about that when you're starting out, you think you can skip like write 500 words a day, like have a dedicated writing space, have a dedicated writing time. I just decided to do those. And the reason that that's kind of standard advice for writing is because it works and it's the only thing that works because you can't go from I want to write a book to putting 60,000 or 70,000 words on paper. You may be very gifted at the stuff you've written may be very good, but you're not a writer yet until you know how to lay out an argument until you know how a book flows and all of these things. And you're always still learning these things. Like I I was with Robert P. Jones back in February and who wrote The End of White Christian America. And I mean, both of his books, White Too Long, both of his books have won national awards. Like you don't win bigger awards than he's won with both his books. He's only written two. And we were at a bookstore and he was right, he was buying a book on writing because he was talking about, I'm still trying to learn how to be a writer. And it's like we all are. And if you don't dedicate yourself to the process of becoming a writer, you won't ever be a writer. And it is that it's the thing that you're doing. So if you're, if you're not turning out a certain number of words every day, if you don't have dedicated writing time, writing space, if you're not studying, if you, there are certain books like Stephen King's On Writing, oh, yeah. Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, Mary Piper's Writing Changed the World. You know, there are a few others. But I think if, if you haven't worked your way through those books, you're not ready to write. When Stephen King says, if you don't read every day, you're not ready to be a writer. And when you look at the habits of you don't have to like these people's books. Stephen King, Nicholas, what's his face that does all of the cheesy romance <laughs> books for <Sparks>. teenagers, Nicholas, <laughs> Sparks. Yeah, Nicholas Sparks. Like actually study what those people do. And that's what it takes to be a writer. And you have to, you have to move Helen from the space of I want to write a book to I am a writer. Yeah. I am a writer. Like this is what I do.
1: That's great advice. I love it. But let me end with this, which is you mentioned the aggressive stances or the aggressive numbers. that they, they have kind of a fire in them already that maybe makes them more predisposed to be action oriented to actually get the writing done. But I would imagine you would say that anyone from any number, from any typology can be a writer. Would you agree with that statement?
0: Yes. It just takes, you know, it only takes three words to be a writer, but in chair. Like, <laughs> you just have to sit down yes. and do it. Yeah. And you'll get better, you'll find readership. It's very much like public speaking. Um, trust yourself and you can do it. You just have to dedicate yourself to doing
1: it. Yeah, good advice. I'm inspired. Well, now we want to let all of you know that you can find Sean Palmer's books, Speaking by the Numbers, as well as 40 Days on Being a Three at ivypress.com, along with other IVP resources mentioned in this episode. And use the code EVN40 to get 40% off these books, plus free U.S. shipping. That's code EVN40 at ivpress.com. So check out our site to get a great deal on these titles.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast brought to you by IVP. Our producers and hosts are Paloma Lee and Helen Lee. If you're enjoying our show, we would welcome your reviews and recommendations. You can also support our efforts financially at everyvoicenow.com. And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at everyvoicenow. Or visit the site for show notes, transcripts, and more. And join us next time for another inspiring episode.